Hello, and welcome to In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a global movement of Evangelical Presbyterian Churches. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, Stated Clerk of the EPC. Our prayer is that God uses Dean and his guests to both inform and inspire you about how God is working in and through the EPC. The motto of our family of churches is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you, Rachel Joseph, as always, for your introduction. And thank you to those of you who've tuned in again for another edition of the EPC's podcast, In All Things. Wherever you find yourself at this time, whether you're just driving along in the car, uh, going for a walk, maybe through a park, or whether you're on the the Peloton, or you're... um, Wherever you might be, just having a cup of coffee in the morning. We drop these episodes every Friday. They are for the EPC. We hope an encouragement to the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. But we're also hoping that people listen in to a conversation that we think extends well beyond the bounds of just one denomination to all followers of Christ and for those who may be even curious. And I think those who may not yet know Christ or have questions about uh, following Christ, those folks might be especially interested in our podcast today. And we hope that you will um, encourage and pass on this, like it on social, uh, all the kind of stuff that gets the word out there, uh, because I hope that you'll uh, do that so that people get introduced to uh, my friend Sean Boone who's going to be our guest today. Now, before we get into Sean and his story and the ministry the Lord has called him to, I just want to highlight one of the ministries in the EPC as a way of a sponsorship for today's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Ad Interim Committee to write a pastoral letter of racial lament and hope. The Ad Interim Committee means it was appointed by the General Assembly uh, under the auspices of the moderator, our previous moderator, Brad Strait, who appointed this team It's responsible directly to the General Assembly, reports directly to the General Assembly. So, for example, next summer at our 43rd General Assembly at Cherry Hills Church in Denver, Colorado, there will be an interim report. So if you're curious about the work of this team, there will be a reporting back to you with an opportunity for feedback and input at that time. It's a pastoral letter because this is a letter that's intended for the EPC. It's an internal letter. And it's uh, for uh, pastors and elders to help guide them on perhaps one of the most important issues of our day. It's not just our day. It's been an important issue pretty much since the history of humanity. Uh, But it has been brought to the fore here of late. And the church needs to be paying attention to that and speaking into that. Uh, And we think the scripture has a lot to say. So it's pastoral. It's biblical. Of course, it's going to be an EPC letter, and we hope it helps provide guidance uh, for conversations in churches. We're using biblical categories uh, like lament and hope. If nothing else, I hope that you will commit regularly to praying for the Ad Interim Committee to write this pastoral letter of racial lament and hope. So without any further ado, let's dig into our our conversation for today. And uh, Sean Boone is one of those people who has said yes and agreed to serve on that committee. Now, after his first day of meetings, he's probably wondering, what did I get myself into? But it's too late. He's already in. There's no reconsidering at this point. But Sean is the um, lead pastor of Wokebridge Community Church in Ferguson, Missouri. And he has a, um, a long history of ministry in the Southern Baptist Church, I believe. Is that right? Got my training and my starting a historical, you know, black church. Okay. And, and then about 07, uh, moved to St. Louis to take a charge to pastor a historical black church there. And after three years, I planted my first church. And that was from 2007 and 2017. 
and that church plant was with the Southern Baptist okay, Convention. All right, I jumped in midstream. So let's go back. Let's rewind the tape. You're originally from Peoria. Originally from Peoria, Illinois. We call it the P, baby. Yep, that's the where P. I'm from. <laughs> the P. <laughs> yeah, so uh, life with me was really a tale of two stories. So every single week, my mother would send me to Sunday school, to church, and then on Wednesdays, I was at youth group. But at the same time, life at home was a little bit different. And so as I was growing up, my mother uh, went to prison twice in my lifetime. Um, once when I was really small, and the second time when I was an uh, early teenager, maybe about 14 years old, 14, 15 years old. And that's when I kind of rebelled. Uh, that's when my world came crashing down. I was hurt. I was angry. I was bitter. I was afraid. I was ashamed. I was all of those things. I really didn't know what to do. And so what I did was I went to the community, to the hood, where I felt like I was going to be loved and cared for. And I got heavily involved in the drug and gang culture there. And I did that all the way until Jesus rescued me in my early 20s. So let's go there. Tell us a story. How did Jesus rescue you? Yeah, you know, so I wasn't really pursuing Jesus at all. I was, he was pursuing you. Obviously, right? And yeah. that's the beautiful thing. I, I, I didn't have Jesus on my mind. I didn't have the church on my mind. I was really perfectly okay and comfortable with living a life that I that I was living. Assumed that I'd either spend all of my life in prison or I'd die young and leave a beautiful corpse. And I was perfectly okay. Because that's what you saw around you all the time. That was the community I was in. That was I would grow up during that, you know, late 80s, early 90s time during the crack epidemic. And so it was a lot of drug and gang violence associated with that level of drug trafficking. And so that's what happened. And so I was just doing a little bitty one year uh, bit in jail, had every intention to get in shape, to rest up, to, to sober up, and then get right back on the block, and then just go faster and harder, right? That's exactly what I thought I was going to do. But during that time, God used several things, several people, to really begin to draw me closer to himself. And I think the most significant thing was on a Saturday morning, my sister and my son, who was a, a toddler, came to visit me in jail. And that was kind of like against the ruse. He wasn't supposed to be there. As a matter of fact, I thought it was my girlfriend that was coming to visit me that morning. And it was my son. And in that moment, when I seen the genuine pain in his eyes and the confusion that he was experiencing visiting dad in jail, I realized then at for the very first time that my life mattered to more than just myself. Mm. And also for the very first time, I had to face the trauma, the sense of abandonment that I had been carrying that had impacted my life so long by my mom going to prison. And that's the first time the light went off. I say God used that time to sit me down just long enough and get me just sober enough where he could speak and I could clearly hear and listen. And I think that was the moment, that was the turning moment for me anyway, when I began to go, I went back to my cell, I locked back, I cried, and then I began to pray and ask God for another way, right? At that point, I was a high school dropout. I was a convicted felon. Uh, I already had two kids, and um, I had never had a job. <laughs> so I was, I, was a, I was a hustler. And so I really didn't know what I was going to do. And at that moment, I began to pray and ask God just for a means of survival. I had no idea how I was going to provide and care for myself. And that's where my journey with Jesus began. And in my, my 36 years of pastoral ministry, I find that people don't really get serious about their relationship with Jesus until they come to the end of themselves. I think the phrase that you used was, for the first time you realized your life mattered to more than just yourself. Exactly. And up until then, it was, it was just me just doing my thing. I was going to go hard. 
And like I said, I was going to die young, leave a beautiful corpse, or you know, I'd be like most of the people in my community. I'd just spend the most of my life in prison. And I was okay with that. I had came to terms with that was the family I was born into. That was the community I was a part of. That was the cycle and the system. That was the world, the only world I knew. And I was perfectly okay with that at the time. So when you got out, what happened after that? <laughs> I went right back to the street, right? You know, I got out. you just being honest. I wish I would have got out and, and went to church, but I didn't. I went right back to the street. And then several other things happened. And But, but I was different, right? And so I could no longer, what I like to say, I could no longer pull the trigger. It became increasingly more difficult for me to do what I always had done. So the Holy I, Spirit is actually now giving you a conscience that says, hey, man, don't go there. Yeah, so I don't know if it was the, the common grace ministry of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what was taking place, but I know that all of a sudden I started experiencing two things that I hadn't before. That was shame and guilt for what was normal for, for me, right? For what was just uh, a part of my everyday life. And I realized I could no longer do it. And so that's when I began to say, man, something is happening. I really don't know. I didn't have language for it. But the same sister who was a believer, by the way, who became a believer years before because, uh, you know, she went through a tragedy. She lost her oldest son to the same gang violence that I was a part of. At, he was 17 years old. And so what happened, she came to, to my shop. You know, I had I did go to Barber College. Right. So God did begin to answer prayers. I didn't really know what was happening. I, I got out. I went to Barber College. I, I completed that program and then I opened up a barber shop. So I'll, here I am now, a young, self-employed African-American guy who was beginning to use some of the skills I learned in the game and began to use it to run a business, a small business in, in my neighborhood. So she came to my barbershop one day and she just said to me, you know, God, you're blessed and the Lord is doing something in your life and, and you need and you need. And I was like, oh, man. Here she goes again with all this Jesus stuff. And so she said, you need to come to church. You need to do this. I said, look, I'm going to come to church one time. And that's what I meant. I'm like, I'm not buying no church clothes. I'm not doing anything. I'm going to come to church one time just to get her off my back. Famous last words. Yeah, that's it. I'm just, I'm just going to go show up this one time. What's the church? It was the Church of the Living God. It was the church that my family had attended. Okay. And so I, I show up this it's Sunday. An independent church, Kojit, it's a, it's a It's a non-denominational church. Okay, right? Gotcha. And so if there's really a such thing as that. So uh, <laughs> I show up at church, right? And I'm angry. I don't want to be there. And all of a sudden, right, something began to happen in the music. And I began to look around at the room. And I saw these people engaged in worship. And it was different than when I was a kid, right? And so then the sermon came and I heard the gospel probably for the first time clearly in my life, right? Mm -hmm. This this point, you know, I'm already a baptized member of the, of the church. I had been in that church. This is the same church I would, my mom would send me to every Sunday, and mm -hmm. I was in youth group, so everybody knew me. And that was it, right? And I've been involved in the church ever since then and faithfully following Jesus. And so Jesus mm -hmm. began to draw me into to himself. So, so at some point in time, you're working your barber shop, but you find your way into the historically black church in leadership or pa pastoring or some kind of ministry. So Yeah, so that same church I became a part of, I, I became really faithful, and I served pretty much everywhere you can serve, from Sunday school, driving the van, working with the youth, and then the pastor of the church began to mentor me and mm. invest a, an enormous mm. amount of time with me and walked with me. And he was the one that kind of helped me see that what the Lord was redeeming me for, was rescuing me for, was to serve his people. So he was the one who helped me that. And so my first assignment was uh, I became the youth pastor of that church. Mm. And then uh, I did that for a few years. And that's when I took a charge and moved to St. Louis to become a lead pastor of a church there. 
what's the church there, and how do you find yourself migrating from a historically black church into, I mean, the, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church is not a historically black church, uh, to say the least. So how do you, how's that journey? Give us a, a quick flyby on how you move from there to, to, to where you are now. That's one of the beautiful things about um, how the Lord has been at work in my life, right? Of course, this is the last place that I would have ever imagined I would have ended up. But when I pastored that church for three years as a senior pastor in that church, I began then to develop the shepherd's heart, you know, develop the preaching voice, you know, was cared for there, was caring for people there. But there was something else I realized while I was there. I began then to realize the who God was calling me to reach because, again, I'm working in the barbershop, but I'm going to this historical black church. But it was a traditional church. And so what happened was I realized that the people that I was meeting in my barbershop in North County where I lived, right, the church that I was pastoring, good church, people loved Jesus, but it wasn't a safe place for them. Right. It wouldn't have been a place that they could have come to. And I began to see that. And then I realized, like, you know, I was serving in some ways in, in Saul's armors, right? in Saul's armor. Right. Because I was becoming the pastor that that church wanted me to be. And the more I did that, the less boom was really visible. And then I'll never forget one day I was I was at home. I was I was I was, you know, at my end. I was bivocational, running a small business in a new city at this church kind of struggling, thinking I was failing. And I was looking in my closet to find something to wear. And I was blown away. And I, and I took a couple steps back and I sat on the bed. And my wife said, what's wrong? I said, I don't have nothing in there to wear. And she went to the closet and she started, you know, like like your wife do, pulling out shirts and stuff. She's like, what about this? I said, I don't like that. She said, well, what about this? I said, I don't like that. Said, what about this? I said, I really don't like that either. She said, well, why do you have it? I said, because I'm supposed to, because I'm the pastor. I was becoming the pastor that the church needed maybe, or they thought they needed, but it wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I resigned from that ministry, but knew that I was, I was called to be shepherding God's people. I was called to be reaching these people in my community and I needed to share the gospel, which I was doing anyway. And so I decided to start a church. We didn't have church planting language, right? Because church planting is not something that's highlighted and celebrated in our community. And so I decided I was going to start a church. And in doing so, I ended up taking a class at Missouri Baptist College there in St. Louis. And while I was taking this class, there was one of the professors there who said to me, man, what are you doing in ministry? And I said, well, you know, I kind of told him my story and said, I'm starting this church in North County. And he said, well, who you, who, who's helping you plant this church? And I said, well, it's a couple of people. We're meeting in my living room. And he said, well, you need to contact this guy. And he gave me the card to a guy named Darren Casper, who was over church planting it, for the St. Louis uh, Baptist Convention, the local association there in St. Louis. Right. I met with him and, and told him kind of who I was and what I was doing. And I went through all of the training and assessments and the boot camps and all of that. And then I became uh, an affiliate of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay, so Ferguson is in North County. We uh, People are aware of Ferguson, I think, from, from the news, and but they don't maybe know Ferguson. So tell us a little bit about the community in which you live. Most people have some misguided uh, and I would say some perverted views of Ferguson basically because of what they seen happen when Mike Brown got killed. So I think that's what mo- the, right. the reference that most people have of Ferguson, but really Ferguson is a, is a nice place. It's a diverse place. It's about 65% African-American, 35% Anglo. At one time it was a sundown town, uh, but because of white flight happened when, 
and redlining and basically ended more and more African-American people moved in and more Anglos moved out. But it, it but it's a part of North County and that part of North County is still a diverse place. So anywhere you go in Ferguson, uh, the park, uh, to the brewery, to the cigar shop, any restaurant, you'll see both. You'll see African-American people and you'll see Anglo people, but you won't see them doing life together. Mm. But, but but they're polite and they're friendly. It's it's a what I would consider it's a it's a safe community uh, community and full of families. So yeah, it's a cool place. But to But you be. had a vision for a church community where people would do life together from different backgrounds, and so you're now the lead pastor at Wilkebridge Community Church. Well, there's obviously a story behind the name Wilkebridge Community Church. Could you unpack that? Yeah, absolutely. And to answer the other part of that question, yes, when we decided we were going to plant this church, we were intentionally going to be uh, a multi-ethnic church. Part of my story I didn't get to was when I went to an all-African-American school in the hood in Peoria, Illinois. It's an underserved, underperforming school that they decided to change into a magnet school. So from kindergarten through fifth grade, all-African-American school. The next school year from sixth to eighth grade, it was a predominantly white school. And so at an early They were age, busing people in. Yeah, school. yeah, yeah. Okay. But it was it was reverse, right? Yeah. It was the Anglos and Asians that was coming to our community, okay. into our neighborhood. And so it was my school. It was my neighborhood where my siblings had went to, same school my wife had went to. You know, so it was our school. So for, for me, that experience was uniquely different to a lot of kids who experienced that DSEC program because they came to my community. And so I never felt the need to have to learn how to fit in. They came to my community. It was their responsibility to learn how to fit in, which meant I never had to learn how to code switch or do any of that kind of stuff. But I learned how to do life, make friends with and be comfortable in spaces with with Anglos. I had no idea. Right. Even during the time I was with the SBC, the 10 years I was there, the church that I was pastoring was a homogenous African-American church. So I had no idea that God was going to use those years those formative years to put me in a position where I could effectively lead a multi-ethnic church. And so when we decided we were going to plant this church in Ferguson, that was the thing I knew that I wanted to see happen. First off, the first church plant I did with the SBC, it, it, you know, it lasted for 10 years and then we had to close our doors. We ran out of resources. And one of the things I learned was that the church plant model at the time was made where it was built for, you know, white suburban churches. That's the model that was built for. And you receive a certain amount of funding for either three or five years. And then after that, if you weren't on your feet, then that was pretty much it. And I realized that model wasn't going to work for the second go around. And another thing I realized was it wasn't going to be fair for me to just ask for my Anglo brothers and sisters to contribute money without making an investment of their lives. And so I said, if we're going to plant this church and if we're going to do it well, it's going to have to be a multi-ethnic church and it's going to require more than just white money. It's going to require white bodies, if I can use that language. And so that's why we decided that we were going to go and plant this church. And also what I wanted to do was make sure that we were presenting the community with something other, something different. We want to help them imagine the church being seen and known as something else. And we want to be this foretaste of the coming kingdom, how we believe the story is going to end, according to the narrative. So we said that we were going to be this place where we're going to encourage and invite both African-Americans and Anglos to select in to come and be a part of this church plant in this community. It's going to be a church that was going to be, you know, people that are going to vote differently, people uh, from different backgrounds, different faith backgrounds other than church people. We knew it was going to be challenging, but we also had this hope in the gospel 
helping us paint this beautiful picture for the people to see the church as something else. And that has to do with your the church's name. Walk us through, unpack the name. Woke Bridge Community Church, and that word woke, I know it incites all different type of emotions and connotations in the minds of, of people who are listening today. And first of all, I want to say is when we picked the name, it wasn't charged, right? <laughs> it wasn't as charged as it is now. But all of that time I spent in, in the barbershop, you know, I realized some things. I learned some things. For an example, it was four chairs on the barbershop side that I worked in. First chair, guy in the Nation of Islam. Another chair, there was a woman who was a, not a religious woman. The next chair was a guy who was an African Hebrew Israelite. And then there's me, this Christian pastor. So for my entire pastoral career, my entire life as a believer, I've been doing cultural apologetics, mm -hmm. right? And there's always been that sense of people in our community that would have identified as woke, which would simply mean that they were aware of the systemic injustices, inequities, and inequalities that was taking place in their community, and they felt like they were compelled to be a part of the solution, right? And so I've always been doing ministry in, in spaces like that and doing apologetics and serving and caring for people in spaces like that. But before... 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even a person that would identify as woke could also be could also identify as Christian. But then as time went on, that changed and it came to a place we really don't know when. But a lot of people look back to the first uh, Trump election as the turning point right, for people uh, in our community, people who would identify as woke. Then all of a sudden you couldn't be woke and couldn't be Christian. You couldn't be, you know, consciously black and be Christian. And so I decided that those are the people in my community that Jesus wants us to go after. Like the name of this, this podcast and all things is we refer Kuiper and he always, he's, his famous quote is that, you know, Jesus takes ownership and claims authority over every square inch. Right. And so I said, these are people that, that are made in the image of God. These are people that should receive care and they should have an opportunity to clearly hear the gospel. So for us, woke is a people group. There are the That's people a, in our community that identify as woke who also struggle seeing that the church and Christianity is a safe place for African-American people. So we would call that missiological context. You have exegeted your community. This is who we're trying to reach for the gospel. But bridge is referring to Jesus, right? Okay. And so we believe Jesus is the answer. He is the bridge. He is the only way. That's what our faith tradition teaches us. And so we say here's this community of people that identify as woke. We're trying to introduce them to Jesus, bring them into our community and in our space. We are so excited and grateful that every week we have other than church people that show up and we tell the people we hopefully this is lived out. A, it's a safe place for you to struggle. This is a safe place for you to be skeptical. And this is a place where you can belong before you believe. Right. And so you can be a part of our community without really being a part of our church. And so we have that the woke, the people, bridge Jesus, the community we're called to reach. And then, of course, ultimately, we're trying, we know the Lord is the one who chooses, but we're, we're trying to get people involved in the life of uh, the church. And so that's what our name is in a nutshell. You dropped a term a little while back, and I'm just going to rewind the tape. We only have a few minutes left, but could you quickly describe for our listeners what code switch well, code switches, basically, that is when an African-American would have to talk like, act like, take the posture of white people in order to be seen as safe, to be taken serious, and also to make sure that they're treated fairly, right? So that started on the telephone. So anytime an African-American person was talking to a white person handling business, they were confident that if 
the person, white person on the other end of the line, assumed they were white, they would have access and opportunities to everything. They were supposed to have access and opportunities and whatever they were doing business with, whether it's the telephone company, the cable company, the utility company, the bank for a loan, it didn't matter. And so that's what code switch was. It was the where we African-American people in order to function in, in and with the majority culture, we had to take on the characteristics of our white brothers and sisters. Got it. Okay. Well, I appreciate that because I could just imagine there were some folks listening who at one point heard that and, and didn't uh, fully understand what that meant. So I think that'll help people as they're tracking here. So um, what what's in closing, uh, Boone, what would be the thing you hope uh, the average EPC person who's listening today to our conversation, what would you want them to take away in terms of the future of the church and the hope uh, as you step into the work with this letter and, uh, you know, you're coming into a really a new denomination, into a space you've not been before, but God has called you. That's a little tenuous. I mean, those steps are, okay, Lord, you're leading me here. This new cross-cultural, multi-ethnic community that you're called to shepherd and lead, new denomination, new experience. What would you want people listening to know about your heart and, and your heart for the church and, and where we're going? Yeah, first, I, I really encourage and invite all of our listeners to be praying for the work that we're doing at Walt Bridge Community Church. It's an extremely difficult task. The beautiful thing is the diversity we have. It's 50% African-American and 50% Anglo that show up on Sunday. Socioeconomic diversity, different people from different faith backgrounds. And there's this, you know, it's just a very diverse place. I think I would love to have people praying for the work we're doing. It's beautiful, but that also invites all different types of challenges as we're all just really trying to figure out how we can do life together and be faithful to Jesus, how we can agree and acknowledge we have real differences. There's people in our church that, that votes Republican. There's people in our church that votes Democrat and everything in between. But what we've said is that for the sake of the gospel, right, we're willing to make those non-essential issues. And so I'd like for people to be praying for that work just and start to dream with us and imagine with us, right, what this could be, what this could look like for an EPC church in Ferguson that is multi-ethnic, led by an ethnic minority to have this faithful gospel presence, giving people this beautiful foretaste of how we believe that the story is going to end every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, you know celebrate and worship in Jesus together perfectly without sin, without division, without all those things. So I think that I would love for people to be praying for the work we got going on there. And secondly, I want to thank you all. Thank the EPC and thank the leadership and for inviting me to be a part of, of this letter and giving me an opportunity to bring my voice to it. But I think it's going to be a very important step that we are taking as a denomination in this very polarized time where there's just this tendency for us to divide over every issue, even on an issue about a racial lament, can be seen by most people through political lenses, not through biblical lenses. And so I think one of the beautiful things that leadership did is said, you know what, this is going to be hard. This is going to make some people uncomfortable, but for the sake of the gospel, so that we can heal, so that we can make sure that the EPC is a safe place for all types of people from all walks of life. We are going to help equip our pastors and equip our leaders to be able to begin to have healthy and honest conversation around this really big cultural moment in our history. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. If they want to learn more about Wookbridge, how would they reach you guys? wokebridge.com okay check us out are you guys on social and things like that 
Yeah, you go to the website, then you'll get everything else. Okay, all right. Workbridge.com, and then you can get all the social emails going on. Excellent. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you coming in, man. Thank you. All right. Well, my friends, that concludes our conversation today. And uh, I could picture down the road, it wouldn't be too long before Boone and I have a follow-up conversation to dig a little bit deeper into some of these things and see how the Lord is continuing to work at Workers Community Church in Ferguson, Missouri. So if nothing else today, pass this on to someone that you know and ask them to join in the prayers uh, for this movement of the Lord in that community. So as we close, uh, we do what we always do, which is turn our attention, our affections, our minds and hearts to God's word. It's the benediction, the benedictus, the good word at the end of our time together comes from God's word in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, my friends, have been created through him and for him. You see, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's the the people in the communities where we live that Jesus died for. It's the church. It's pastors. It's all things. All things hold together in him. Because you see, he is the head of the body, the church. Until the next time when we gather, my friends, in the name of our precious Savior Jesus, I bid grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.